0: hello everyone this is dan with the spiritual underground podcast coming to you once again from the wood shop at dtm studios my little wood shop in my backyard uh where we do most of this recording Um uh, get through these commercials real quick you'll hear an ad for anchor the host of the um, podcast i'd like to invite you to go to dtmww.net that is my dtm woodworking uh website uh again woodwork you want created or refinished uh, you can get a hold of me there. Also doing some handyman work here in the Louisville metropolitan area, where if you want something like that, you can contact me through that website. Uh, go to Amazon to get Christopher Cohn's book, 12 Steps Spiritual Recovery. Uh, we wandered around these rooms all the time. And you hear the words uttered, uh, wish everybody had this program. And this book is laid out in a way that everybody can get this program. Uh, you don't have to be an addict alcoholic. You could use these 12 step tools uh, to create some uh, better in your life. So that's 12 Step Spiritual Recovery at Amazon by James Christopher Cohn. And finally, give musical credit to Darren Frank. He's the guy whose music you'll hear in the beginning and end of this thing. So I've got a really special guest today. Uh, I've really been, we've worked and juggled around a few things to to make this happen today. And uh, so I'm really excited. I want to open up with a little story about how I actually came to know this gentleman in the first place. Uh, When I first came into the room's, it was in 2011, and uh, and when I say that, I actually had to make the caveat that it was the first time I came in with like a third tradition in my pocket. I was court-ordered to AA when I was young. When I was a kid, I got a DUI when I was 16. I got another one when I was 19. They made me go to meetings, but I didn't hear anything. What I can remember is cigarette smoke, old men, and coffee. Uh, when I was in 2011, I came in with a desire to stop drinking. And uh, some guys turned me on to speaker tapes. And I started listening to them, and they were sending me links on my telephone, and uh, And I was listening to them. I was getting a lot out of those speaker tapes when I wasn't able to, like, absorb recovery talk when I, you know, like when I was at work. I could put headphones in and listen to this, and it was a lot better than other things I was putting, you know. Well, actually, what it did is kept my brain from thinking about the other things that it wanted to think about. Uh, it was being uh, washed, brainwashed in some sense, and put recovery in so that the other stuff wasn't there. Well, I had this crazy idea that maybe I should maybe, you know, these people were from who knows where. And uh, and I thought maybe maybe it'd be good if I did a search for somebody who was more local to listen to, because it probably could relate better to somebody who was local that lived closer to me. And uh, so I did some searches out there on the Internet and I found a guy it was Don M said it was an attorney from Louisville. So I listened to his story. I got a lot out of it. I don't know that there was a lot of difference between alcoholism on the West Coast, the East Coast, or in the middle. Most of the stories are, our stories are all a little different, but uh, the same, same path, same trajectory seems to be uh, prevalent. But the cool thing, what happened though, is I heard that, you know, and you kind of put these people up on this pedestal you hear on the, on the radio or hear, hear them on the internet, you know, and, and, and I, and I felt I felt victim to that. And uh, it was a Saturday night, just not long after, and uh, I was looking for a meeting to go to. I knew a guy was celebrating down at what we call the Smoking Token, my local little token club. And uh, it's the only one I know of where they actually still smoke cigarettes in an AA meeting. But I walked into that meeting that night, and there was no smoke in the hall. And that was way different. I knew something was special that night when there was no smoking going on down there. And, and I looked and I had met the guy, Larry, who was celebrating that year. I had known him. I saw him around and had met him. And some friends were there and told me that, uh, that it was Larry's birthday and the speaker. We didn't smoke at night because of the speaker in, in, to, uh, uh, in respect of him. And I sat down and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I and mean, I was really happy about that because I didn't really want to sit in all that cigarette smoke anyway. And have this guy speak every night to keep the cigarette smoke out of here. And uh, I sat down and uh, they introduced a speaker. And it was this gentleman who I just heard. It was Don M. from Louisville. Uh, apparently you has spoke for Larry's birthday many, many times, maybe every one of his birthdays from what I understand. And, uh, you know, you get these little, uh, God shots, we call them uh, a lot of different words for them, but the hair stood up on my arms and my neck. And that, that, that intersection of like more and more in recovery, I realized that I hit these points where it, my higher power lets me know I'm like on the right path. It's kind of like a higher power at God kind of pats me and says, "Yep, that's that's the right direction there, Dan. You're 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 heading the right way." And that was one of those shots for me. Uh, whether it really had any significance in the in the in the grand scheme of things or not, that night it meant something to me. So that's how I met our guest today, Don M. So there's a little story to start us off today, and uh, and, and get my vocal cords and uh, and uh, everything rolling today. So welcome to the show, Don. I'm really honored to have you here.
1: Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the, I, I know you probably didn't know any of that, uh, that little story I just told.
1: No, I didn't. Uh,
0: yeah. You do know about the token and Larry. Uh, oh, absolutely. And yeah. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Larry's someplace in the 26.
1: No, he's in
0: the 30s. He's in the 30s now. I uh, think that was the 26th one is why I remember it.
1: And I've been blessed to speak at every one of Larry's birthdays. Every one of them. And
0: I, do you sponsor Larry? No, no, you I just never speak for him. him. Yeah.
1: Just um, have spoken at all of his birthday. Wow,
0: that's a that's a big streak. <laughs> and I guess has it always been down here to? At uh, no, some version? it's moved all around. It, moved around.
1: it was in Palmyra for a while. I remember uh, yeah. one night going. Of course, it's in February, and I remember one night going through uh, eight or nine inches of snow to get to uh, Larry's birthday. But it's something that's really important to me and Larry says it's really important to me. And every year I am I ended by telling him that we'll be back next year if Larry and I don't drink or don't die.
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's the trick to get, a, get one year more sobriety. Don't drink and don't die.
1: That's exactly yeah. The key to being an old-timer. Right. Don't drink, don't die.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, we don't have a – I don't really have a format here. You know, we can talk – usually we start at the beginning most of the time, and that's it stays relatively chronological. Uh, we have a little more time than we would have. So we have as much time as you want to use. Okay. We're not up against the bell. We can end when you're ready to end, you know. So okay. one of the things that's kind of neat about that is, as you know very well, that if you end up with that 40 minutes or so on an hour meeting, mm-hmm. by the time they do 10 minutes of opening and 10 minutes of closing, uh, we're abbreviating our stories to get get that done and uh and i've heard you speak i've heard a couple versions because that's one of the cool things about if you listen to people that actually are able to be recorded or you show up i've heard you speak in person a number of times too uh that that story's not to you know different different segments sneak in and that's part of that god leading me to talk hopefully that that's guiding me to do that that these certain elements sneak into one talk and they don't make it into another because you just really can't uh it's a big big long story uh, the one thing I do want to make sure, though, is that uh, you know our book tells us to do the uh, what you know, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. Uh, you know, I really, really want that end of that. What's it like now? Because that's there the icing is on the cake for the miracles that I call miracles. Uh, my sponsor has early on when things started happening for me, he asked me and recommended, suggested he don't remember doing this. That's the funny thing too, is he don't remember doing this. Uh, I seem to have heard it that I start making notes of these cool things that were happening in my life that I could chalk up to the fact that I was in recovery, that I was working these principles and doing that. And my list kept growing, and at times things would happen, and I would call my sponsor excited about something, and he'd say, add it to the list. Add <laughs> it to the list. And the truth is now, when I go back and look at that list, it's really amazing of what God has done in my life since coming here and started practicing, you know, do, working these 12 steps and, and start doing the practicing these principles in, uh, in, in the best way that I can do that. Uh, so I definitely want to make sure we get to some of
1: those towards the end, okay. too, because everybody's
0: got them, right?
1: Everybody's got them, and it sounds like your sponsor um, has some thinking in common with my original sponsor, who was Cherry C. from Nashville, Tennessee. And what came to my mind is that Cherry frequently told me that a pen and piece of paper, or a pencil and piece of paper, are recovering alcoholics' best friends. Mm. That is a whole yeah. lot of value in writing things down. Yeah. Uh, so i I think that's an excellent idea that your sponsor sponsor gave you there. Yeah. yeah. And um, in in my speaking, I I, I try always to follow the one. directions, which is not easy for me because <laughs> by nature I'm not a directions follower. And in fact, you you see, I'm different. I'm special. Uh, uh, the directions have never really applied to me Dan Uh, and I've always understood more about the directions than ordinary people Uh, and you of course know I've got my tongue in my cheek yeah right but uh, I've always understood uh, who's responsible for the directions and it's just really conservative nerds who are usually being advised by insurance lawyers who are worse than they are and I've always understood that the directions, uh, uh, the target audience of the directions is just stone morons, just <laughs> idiots. And and in my special case, it's necessary to, I guess you might say, extrapolate to figure out what the directions might really mean, because they clearly don't mean what they say. So uh, I have trouble with the directions. I need what I call divine intervention to follow them. Mm. But i I've, I've, I try to follow always the directions that you mentioned, the, the basics that we hear every time we hear how it works for it, a little bit about what I was like and what happened and, and what I'm like now. Uh, and, you know, big distinction there. There's a tendency to paraphrase that into what it was like. What happened and what it's like now. Mm. And there's actually a great big difference between what I was like and what it was like. Yeah, I had to and go back and see what I God, said. There's a huge difference today in what it is like and I am like. Yeah. I don't have to be like it today. Yeah. That's it can really be not to my liking. Yeah. But by the grace of God, I can be okay.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And there's actually another set of directions that that really, really is important to me that we don't talk about nearly as much as we do the the basics. Uh, the big book says words to the effect um, that our personal story is telling our own language and from our own point of view how we've been able to form a relationship with our creator. Yeah. And uh, my, my story on that is that. Uh, I never had or sought a relationship with any sort of God until after I got sober at 37 years old. I I had been uh, an evangelical agnostic all my life. Uh, I I really I don't understand what I'm about to say. Uh, And I didn't talk about it for over 30 years sober because it just sounds... So crazy and and, and off the, the the charts that I just didn't talk about it. But I grew up on a tobacco farm down in southwestern Kentucky. Yeah, and uh, Locust Grove Baptist Church was a little less than a mile down the road from our farm, and I've got a clear memory of sitting in there about Christmas time, and I figured I must have been about four years old, and I have a clear memory of still believing in Santa Claus and not buying a word that the preacher of Brother Lyons was singing. <laughs> you know, where that came from, I don't know. i hmm. uh, give you another little bit of my background, and I don't know whether people are born alcoholics or not, and I no longer care, Yeah. Um, but uh, <clears throat> the first uh, day of the second grade in school, I went into the principal's office, Miss Fanny Wallace, and said, "Miss Fanny, I have been in a car wreck over the summer and have brain damage, so I can't be expected to do as well this year as I did last year." <laughs> now, man, working like that at six year old six years old may may have a little something off uh, off key about it. Yeah, uh, no doubt. But but at any rate, uh, I really always hope that my story carries. Uh, how a relationship with my creator, my God, has has developed because without that I have nothing. Uh, right. You know, we talk about the spiritual side of the program. Well, well what's the other in side? In the final analysis, there isn't any other right. side. Right. Yeah. And, yep. I mean, yeah. That, that, it's that's lack it. of
0: power and, and getting in touch with a higher power or something that you can, yeah. um, you know, God of your understanding. Exactly. And it says it plainly that is what this book is about.
1: Without it, we are group therapy. Yeah. That's just simply what it is. And therapy of any kind has got a batting average of perilously close to zero Hmm. in being effective on alcoholism. Uh, It didn't work on me. In my case, it didn't work on me. I ran through a bunch of them. Uh, Just to go on a little bit about uh, what I was like. uh, you, You know, I've been convinced for, gosh, Uh, My sobriety date, by the way, is April the 9th of 1981. And I was 37 when I got sober. So just last year, I finally got to the point where I'd been sober half my life. Yeah. But um, (coughs) uh, the big book says that our root of our troubles is our selfishness and self-centeredness. And what that's meant to me for decades is that the first thing wrong with me is I've got an ego disorder. I've had it all my life. And that ego disorder's been right in my face every day of my life, drunk and sober. Every day of that 75 years, my ego disorder's been right there. And what that ego disorder does is it makes me so obsessed with myself. So obsessed with how I believe I stack up against other people in the world. And so obsessed with how I feel that I believed for a long time that the bedrock of my alcoholism, the absolute basis that was there years before alcohol came into the picture, can be boiled down to one sentence. And that one sentence is this. Without divine intervention... I will always wind up letting how I feel be the most important thing in the world to me. Yeah. Now, without divine intervention, I can give some lip service to something being more important. And I might be able to act for just a little while like something is. But if I haven't done the work I need to do today, and if I've learned anything in my time around AA, I've learned that I don't get much divine intervention on Sunday based on what I did on Saturday. Yeah. It's right. truly a day-at-a-time thing. And if I haven't done what I need to do, when the chips get down, I'll go right back to my default position. And I'll let the way I feel be the most important thing in this universe. And yeah. uh, I think that's the basis of it for me. Yeah, I was talking to yeah. uh,
0: one of our mutual friends, Kev, uh, yesterday uh-huh. about being nervous about having you over. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and he says, he's just a regular old guy. And I said, you know, Kevin, uh, I know that. <laughs> but it doesn't make any difference because I do look up to you at some level, and there's a thing where I said, "Well, I'm worried about can I, can I when he comes over, can I really be me, or am I gonna am I gonna yeah. shut down and be you know be something different?" <laughs> and, and I'm just wheeling around in my head, and he used that three letter word too about the ego trying to talk me into into oh, chasing my feelings, and and even though I can rationalize that and talk about it and see it, yeah. I still can't help it.
1: Oh, it doesn't <laughs> make go away. It doesn't make go away, but. Boy, have I ever learned a wonderful secret. That old crazy stuff can be going through the old crazy picture showing the back of my head, and it does not have to impact or control my actions. Yeah, there you go. I've yeah. learned that, my, that, you, you know, the world has never given a hoot what I'm thinking, feeling, and believing. <laughs> right. Uh, the truth is that those thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of men that I think are the center of everything... They have never one time in my years on this earth left a single footprint on reality.
2: Yeah,
1: it's all just a a tempest in a teapot. What I call that old crazy picture show in the back of my head. Yeah, I uh, I like that. We're hearing that from you too. Exactly. Exactly. Uh,
0: Because it it, is. It plays
1: some weird stuff back in the back of there. You know. You go. Really? Am uh, I
0: thinking that? I should be ashamed of myself.
1: (laughs) Now. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, I'll give you an example of, of something that really helped me come to the point where I realized that, hey, what's going in the record book here and what's important is what I do. It's not what it goes through my head. The first couple of years I was sober, I was really down on myself because I believed I was so judgmental. I mean, my brain was just like a a, a, a computer going click 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 with, I'd be walking down the street and just past people on the street and my brain's making judgments usually not very flattering to the yeah, people right. yeah. so I thought I was terribly judgmental and then it got clear to me one day I'm not judgmental until or unless I act judgmentally hmm. and I don't believe God gives me black marks for things that go through my head that I cannot control. If you really think about it, Dan, if God is the type of entity that would put involuntary thoughts in our head and then punish us for having them, we're screwed anyway. Yeah, (laughs) you're right. We may as well give up. So I don't grade myself on what goes through my head. I grade myself on what I do. Well, what you do, what yeah. I do. Yeah, I heard another person just say, uh, another speaker I really like to listen
0: to, Scott L. He said, you know, he's not responsible for the thoughts. Now, he said, I am responsible for how
1: long I think them. It's exactly right. In fact, Scott and I are, are dear old friends. Are you? And, uh, I really
0: love to listen to him.
1: The last uh, fall, he and I did a, a step retreat together down in Mont Eagle, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Uh, we've done that a few times. Man, I'd and, like uh, to be a part of <coughs> that. Scott said something uh, that weekend that stuck with me ever since. He said that the first stitch, or, or I call it stitch, God mm-hmm. calls it step, away from God's will is not necessarily really outside of God's will. Because if I will realize that and jerk back up and take the next step or stitch in the right place... God will weave that into the tapestry. Where I get in trouble, Scott said, is that second willful stitch away from God's will. Ah, that one's that where really I'm good. really on the road to perdition. Is yeah. when I'm, I continue it after I've recognized that I'm away from God's will. Yeah, that is so really Scott's good. Scott's a wonderful guy.
0: Well, I poured a lot of Scott's tapes and stuff in his... Uh, his uh Like uh, big book studies and step studies, some of the longer things that are, you know, hours and hours and hours. Because I, you know, this might be a little ego talking too, but there's not a lot of guys that sit around and put more of this in their head, man. Because I sat at a desk where I could listen to speaker tapes eight hours a day and did for year after year after year after year of listening to it. And then I found my favorites and you could find a lot of his stuff out there. And uh, he's got a five hour one called Promises and Something Another. I can't remember. And it's just, I, I give it to everybody I know. I say, here, listen to this. Well,
1: Scott Scott does beautifully on those things. Yeah, uh, yeah and I, I
0: incorporate a lot of that in the way that I work with the new guy, too. You yeah. know, his stuff about sponsorship and, and, and a lot of what I say. Uh, sometimes I tell people, don't listen yet, because wait till I say it. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll know where I got it.
1: <laughs> the, for most of us, there's very, ri- very little original. Yeah, does. right. Yeah, I'm not uh, making anything up here. But you, you know the rule. Yeah. Um, we can give credit three times, and then after that, it's ours. <laughs> yeah i've heard that too but um uh, anyway I, I want to throw in another little story about my childhood okay, just, good. To, to, just to give a kind, kind of a picture of how my ego has always worked um, when i was a little kid i would look around at the really decent hard-working responsible men around the farming area where I grew up, and uh, here's what I saw. I saw really dull-looking guys in these old overalls, and uh, these guys would be married to some old woman, wore these flour sack type dresses, really drab-looking, and uh, they'd uh, get up every morning and go and get in an old beat-up, paid-for pickup truck with no opinion on them. And they would go exactly where they were supposed to go after eating breakfast with that wife and probably a whole house for a little snotty-nosed kids. They'd go exactly where they were supposed to go and do what they were supposed to do all day. And then they would come back, and this floored me at four years old. They'd come back at the end of the day, the same people they left that morning.
2: <laughs>
1: and then they'd get up the next day and do the same thing again. And then maybe on Sunday morning, they'd get up and load that drab looking woman, those little old kids in that pickup truck, and go up the road to Julian Baptist Church or down the road to Locust Grove Baptist Church that I mentioned. And then they'd do something on Sunday afternoon like like go visit people. Well, I, I observed that and had the only thought that without divine intervention, I'm capable of having, and that is, of course, what has that got to do with me? And here, I want to tell you, it came to me that, well, I'm a little boy and they're grown men. So maybe when I grow up, uh, it will be something like that for me. And it like to have scared me to death. Mm. It, it just terrified me to think I'd grow up to be anything like those decent, hardworking men. And my brother Dan, who did not cause my alcoholism anyway, Dan was was thirteen years older than I. Thirteen and, years but, older. I'm sorry. He was thirteen years older than uh-huh. you. And uh, by the time I was seven or eight years old, Dan would take me with him. We we were in a dry county, but about four miles down the road in Gracie, Kentucky, it was across the line in wet County, in Christian County. And Dan would take me over to the beer joints with him. And I would sit there in the beer joints, and while Dan drank beer, I'd drink big oranges and eat pickled eggs and, and watch and listen. And I want to tell you, when I saw those honky-tonk heroes sitting at that bar and doing really interesting romantic things like staring down into that beer and turning that bottle around tapping on it with a ring, I took one look at those guys and knew they were intelligent and romantic and interesting. And I wanted to be just exactly like them when I grew up. And I'd listen to them, and every one of them had a big deal going on. Man, something was just about yeah, right. to pop, and they were flat going to be somebody. Or if it was a bad thing, it was the worst bad deal anybody ever had. And I took one look at that insanity and fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to grow up to be just exactly like them. So you see, I always wanted to be an alcoholic, I just didn't know what the right name for it was. <laughs> but uh, i can relate to the same thing of seeing the
0: boringness of other people and and seeing some guys that were doing some pretty wild stuff and as i told you when we come in the door we're sitting at the neighborhood that i grew up in Mm -hmm. so some of this happened right here right you know and and we have a down at the end of my little my little dead end road here it's a circle and it comes back in the other way and there's a pipe a big about a five inch, four inch pipe that goes through a big oak tree. The oak tree's dead and gone now. Mm -hmm. And this pipe goes through there and blocks that off down there. And now and again, somebody'd be all hopped up on a Saturday night or something and come flying down my street. And they didn't know the end of the street had that pipe across there. (laughs) And they'd go run up underneath of it and we'd hear the big crash and you'd come outside and of course then, you know, and you'd hear, I don't know how it even got into my head, but you know, it was told to me that they were drunk and they were you know, but it looked fun to me, right? You know, oh, I'm yeah. like, hell, that that looks, it, you know, I laugh, yeehaw, you know, and another thing, when we grew up down there, we called that the bar. Because that pipe was a bar that went through the tree, you know, so mm-hmm. like when we'd be sitting in the living room and be bored to listen to mom, and dad's friends talk and whatnot, you know, me mm-hmm. and my brother say, well, hey, mom, uh, we're going to leave for a little bit. We're going to go down to the bar. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember if you look at, no, that's the mom, and dad explained what that meant. And there's just a little spot down there where we go play in the dirt right. and a little culvert down there. And, and, uh, but, but later on, some exciting people started hanging out down there too, uh, uh, that, that weren't from the place I grew up at, and they were doing cool things like smoking cigarettes and had beer and 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 things like that down there and just lots of different but similar. I said, hey, those guys look like what I need to be doing. Can I right. have one
1: of those? Same thing. Same thing. Yep. But um, I had the most interest in and romantic saga to tell about before I got sober that you ever heard of in your life, Dan? And I believed every word of it. Uh, My capacity for self-delusion is astounding. And uh, (laughs) if I hadn't done the work I need to do today to get my help, it's fully intact. But uh, I I had this story of my early life, but really my early life and my subsequent rise to power (laughs) about uh, having, by my iron will and my sterling intellect, pulled myself up by the bootstraps from the depths of poverty to these staggering heights I'd reached in life. And I believed that thing sincerely enough. I'd have us both crying before I got halfway done telling it. And uh, I don't think I was truly sober a week when I realized, man, what a load of baloney. (laughs) We weren't even poor. Uh, In fact, we were better off than anybody else in the whole farming community that we grew up in. And you can probably already guess, those staggering heights I thought I reached were a whole lot more staggering than they were high. Uh, That's uh, one one of the many aspects of my many-splendored alcoholism. Uh, Something that my high school English teacher would probably have called a disease of superlatives. And what that means is that without divine intervention, I won't think in terms of things like good or bad. An ordinary won't ever cross my mind. I'll go directly to the extremes of everything—best, worst. And the truth is, drunk and sober, I've been a lot more ordinary than my ego's ever liked. Yeah, yeah. But that—that—that uh, that, that is the case. But anyway, what was really going on that first? 12 or 13 years was all that obsession with myself and, you know, self-obsession is not peculiar to alcoholics. Cherry, my original sponsor, always said that selfishness and self-centeredness is not just the disease of alcoholics, it's the disease of mankind, humankind, and that um, the difference in us is two things. Number one, it's more severe. Number two, we have the physical allergy to alcohol and the mental obsession with it. Yeah. But that obsession with ourselves, with myself, has always created so much pain and, and emptiness and difference and apartness down inside me that I've never been able to stand the way I feel without either running just as hard as I could and or stuffing something in there to try to make me feel good enough that I could stand it. Yeah. The, that ego disorder of mine, without divine intervention, shuts me off from fellowship altogether. Without divine intervention, I have no peers. None. I can't be just okay with you, myself, or anybody else on earth. It makes me an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Right. I can be above you, I can be below you, and insanely, I can be both at the same time. Right. Yeah. But it can't be just okay. Now, for yeah. the last 38 years, the 12 steps that are the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous have filled up that same emptiness and soothed that same pain and, and done something about that difference in apartness. And mm-hmm. made me just fine as long as I do on a daily basis what I need to do to keep it filled. But the first 12 or 13 years of my life really, uh, what was truly going on instead of that interesting and romantic crap, I thought it was just a totally self-obsessed kid trying to stay a half a step ahead of screaming fit, trying to keep all the balls juggled and the lights flashing, the mirrors working, the smoke shooting out, so you couldn't see what I was and what I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then I wouldn't have to stop yeah. look at it. Because a part of me, I believe, always felt like that if I really had to just stop and look at what I was and what I wasn't, it would be like the earth would swallow me up through that emptiness in my own middle and just I'd disappear. disappeared. Yeah. And that's the mess I brought to my first drunk. Now, I was either 12 or 13. And that first night I got drunk, I uh, puked, blacked out, passed out, wound up getting in a lot of trouble. Woke up the next morning with a terrible hangover. And the four horsemen were already gathered around me. Uh, that fear and, fear and bewilderment was all there. Um had a terrible hangover, just so sick I thought I would die. And In fact, I, I'm convinced that if I don't drink again, I'll never be as sick as I was 80% of the days for, 30, for 25 years. Yeah. Uh, and I, I swore that I'd never, ever take another drink, that those Baptists around the farm were right in that very limited uh, respect. <laughs> and, uh, and and I would never taken another drink, um, and I, I was sincere, and in a way, it was kind of effective because it was nearly a week until I got drunk the second time, and uh, the way things were going to go for the next quarter of a century, it was a near miracle for me to go nearly a week, and I got drunk that second time after all that trouble, I believe for exactly the same reason I got drunk the other several thousand times. Uh, Because when I got enough of that booze in me, the magic happened. And most alcoholics have a version of this story. I didn't wake up next morning with all that terror, terror and think, man, the magic happened last night. All that I knew until after I got sober was that for a few minutes on my way to the puking and the trouble and all that other stuff, I had passed through a right pleasant neighborhood. But looking back on it, of course it was the magic. Because for the first time in my life, I had found something that made me feel good enough inside myself that I didn't have to run or didn't have to try to stuff anything else in there. Yeah. For the first time in my life, I was a fellow among fellows. For the first time in my life, I had peers. Now remember, without divine intervention, the way I feel is the most important thing in the universe. So for the next 25 years, there's no mystery to me about my powerlessness over alcohol and in the latter years, the things like it, because i didn't know there was anything else in the world that could do that trick for me, make me feel the way I wanted to feel, yeah, so the bottom line was simple: it didn't matter what it cost, and it didn't matter who it cost, yeah, because the way I feel is the most important thing in the universe, and I was off and running from the very beginning. Um, I was born with some some real academic gifts. Uh, And a kid who drank and acted the way I did after that first drunk in today's world would find himself locked up in an asylum somewhere before his 14th birthday. But in the 1950s in Trigg County, Kentucky, if you were cute enough and smart enough, and if you had the right last name, you could get away with practically murder, Mm -hmm. and I practically did Um, But by the time I was 16 and winding up my junior year of high school, um, I was still holding on to things like grades and popularity by my fingernails. But I had just lost the election for student body president, which I knew would never have happened if it had been a couple of years before. And I knew why things were crumbling. They were crumbling on account of my drinking. I didn't have any denial whatsoever. Uh, so it was time to get out of Dodge. And I left uh, and uh, got on a Greyhound bus by myself and came 200 miles up to Louisville. Kicked around for a couple of three days and wound up on the doorstep of the University of Louisville. They gave me a bunch of tests, let me in as an early admission student with an academic scholarship. Wow. And my reaction to that was to stay so drunk the first semester that I lost all concept of day and night. Wow. Just passing out and coming to. Of course, I blew the scholarship. Then for the next seven and a half years, I worked full-time, drank full-time, went to school full-time, and somehow got through undergraduate and law school with good grades. Wow. Amazing. And I have no idea how that happened. Uh, Dan, I don't have a, a handful of really clear memories of that entire eight-year period. But I could sit down and tell you, yeah. Let me talk to you about what happened. Uh, yeah, I couldn't. It's, it's just all a swirling gray mass of alcoholic insanity. Yeah, right? yeah. I look back
0: at times. It's like looking through a veil. There's,
1: yeah. there's I can kind of see
0: something that's back here, but I couldn't lay it out
1: for you. That's right. That's right. And spring of nineteen sixty-eight, I graduated from law school, and my daughter Dana, who's fifty-one now, was born. Dana, Dana was my only child for twenty-one years. I have a a wonderful 30-year-old son now. But I passed the bar, started practicing law in downtown Louisville and practiced for about 10 years with a pretty good bit of success materially. Um, not nearly as much as I used to think I'd had. <laughs> a peculiarity about staying sober a while is we get a, be- a different and a better focus on our past. Uh, they tell us out in the world you can't change the past don't believe that crap we do it in here every day <laughs> uh but um and I, I, I did i always have been a cr- criminal defense lawyer ever since i got out of school and started and always been self-employed and always had a knack for getting involved in some cases that had some money and some publicity in them and and of course we're going back fift- and the, in fact today i'm I was licensed to practice law 51 years ago today, Today. September the 8th of 1968. How about that? Uh, But uh, at any rate, uh, a little law firm of nine or ten lawyers built up around this other lawyer and myself. And uh, by the time February 10th of 1978 rolled around, I'd been practicing going on ten years. And uh, that ten years was crazier than the time leading up to it as crazy as that eight years that i tell you is just a swirling mass of alcoholic insanity it got worse Uh, i'd had a boss for seven and a half years i no longer had a boss that that contributed to it yeah um i had some money i had more money to fire things with and of course alcoholism just progresses in everybody that's ever had it and uh, during the latter part of that 10 years I used a world of things other than the booze and I used a world of them but I I generally tell people that uh, before they get their singleness of purpose knickers all in a knot (laughs) let me finish Uh, (laughs) it's uh, because my story is exactly like Bill and Bob's stories are I used more stuff, I'm sure, and, and different things, of course, than they used. But yeah, what he got is the same story. Uh, everything other than booze that I used was something to have an impact on the booze. The booze was always the big tent, yep, and everything else was a sideshow.
0: I'll tell a uh, similar story on that, too. What I put in me was to help me drink the way I wanted to drink. That's right. I didn't yeah. put things
1: in me that made that a problem, right, I didn't like things that slowed me down. <laughs> 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 that's right and you know if if we really are not supposed to ever ever breathe a word about those other things somebody needs to tell Bill Wilson to get it out of his story
0: yeah right yeah. <laughs> and read those stories in the back of that book too absolutely uh, a big percentage of those books in the back absolutely. of that and, or those stories in the back and, of that book have that in part of it too
1: and don't get me wrong uh, I'm I'm a big believer in singleness purpose uh, yeah and the uh, the the Physical allergy to alcohol, that phenomenon of craving, and our mental obsession is peculiar to alcoholics. Yeah. And that's something that we can really only share with alcoholics. But uh, I think the greater threat to AA than uh, the drug addicts is the paranoid reaction to the drug addicts. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I agree. Cherry Ch- Ch- yeah. believes that uh, AA is a big tent, that the room for all, yeah. all of us. And uh, and I believe that's true, as long as we've got a desire to stop drinking and think we belong in alcoholic's none. Right. Yeah. But um, at any rate, going on February tenth, nineteen seventy-eight, I got full of uh, actually Scotch, cocaine, quaylude speed, and vodka, and I drove a Corvette off the Penny Row Parkway back down on the Tennessee line again uh, uh, at something over one hundred twenty. Did really horrible things to my body. I, I was in the hospital more than six months of the year following that wreck, Whoa. Uh, aggregate, and had half dozen major surgeries. Um, they told me it, it had, uh, among other things, uh, it had destroyed a good part of the artery in one lower leg, and they uh, had to do emergency surgery. They took me to Vanderbilt because I was closer to Nashville than Louisville when I had the wreck, and. They had to do emergency surgery to do a bypass in the upper leg and graft in some vein to replace that artery. Yeah. And I woke up two or three times during the surgery because oh, wow. I still had a blood alcohol of 0.40 when I got there, mm. over 0.40 with all the other stuff. And they were scared to give me enough anesthesia to keep me under, afraid they'd kill me. Kill yeah. yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, it had uh, separated my pelvis and, and pulled my internal plumbing into. So I didn't have a urinary function for over a year after that wreck. I had a suprapubic catheter, they call it. I didn't practice law for five more years. To give you an idea of the extent of my powerlessness and my insanity, um, after I got uh, moved back to Louisville, uh, which, by the way, I I, I wasn't stood upright on a tilt table for nearly three months. I was still... I had to be moved by ambulance, flat on my back, against medical yep. advice. But they didn't know who I was at Vanderbilt and didn't treat me with nearly the appropriate deference, I'm here to tell you. But after I got moved back to Louisville, to the best of my memory every day, my friends, and one of those friends is a mutual acquaintance of ours named John G. Yep. Uh, there were really only two or three of them who are still alive and out of the penitentiary in the, the NAA. But uh, they would come in every single day and bring me booze and more dope than the doctors were giving me. And I would lie in that hospital bed and say really intelligent things. Uh, I would say things like, you know, fellas, anybody can stop drinking when the going gets a little tough. But it takes a man to lay in there with it when the bills start coming in. And then I would explain to him that a man ought not be out there doing the crime if he's not prepared to do the time. So give me, I'm laying there, by the way, with a prognosis of never walking without a brace on at least one of my legs. And the doctors had told me early on that they were sure we'd never find anybody who would ever restore my urinary function, that I would have that catheter stuck through my belly into my bladder the rest of my life. (laughs) So I had that diagnosis. And that is insanity. Yeah. That's powerlessness. And when you really think about it, it's letting the way I feel in the instant and my desire to change it be the most important thing in the universe. Yeah. Letting that be more important than my child, more important than my profession, more important than whether I ever walked, more important than whether I ever peed, more important really than whether I lived or died. Right. Yep. And I'm convinced that after we know what we are, after we know we're alcoholics or whatever kind of addict we are, actually, we put that first one in us. I'm convinced that is the most self-centered act on the face of this earth short of suicide. Yeah. Because it's a conscious decision that I'm letting the way I feel in this moment be more important than everything else. Everything. So... At any rate, uh, to to shorten it up a little bit in the five year uh, the uh, see that was fair in three years and two months following that wreck, <clears throat> I lost absolutely everything. Um, the uh, I had a young lady with me when I had the wreck, who mm. was not my daughter's mother, and at the time of the wreck, I was remarried to my daughter's mother, and uh, I'm certainly not proud of the pain that I caused in that area of life and I've, I've had to do and still live a lot of them in some kind of it. But not going to fail to laugh at myself where I've been ridiculous. Uh, of course, I got a brand new divorce right after the wreck. That's and uh, the young lady that was with me was hurt badly, but not nearly as badly as I was. Uh, hmm. Of all things, she was wearing a seatbelt. Ah. Uh, and uh, I wound up married to her. <laughs> and during this period of time, she had to leave me on account of insanity because I was in some kind of asylum, I call them, 18 times in a two-and-a-half-year period. Wow. Uh, and she had to leave me and was staying with some girlfriends and died in an accident. I had last laid eyes on my only child, Dana, in January of 1980, and I did not see her, talk to her, or have any communication whatsoever for over three years. Wow. The guys that had to kick me out of the law firm I'd founded because of the social and legal pressure that my public behavior brought on them. Right. State of Kentucky jerked my law license shortly after that, uh, and it was all gone. We had built an office building down at 440 South 7th in yeah. Louisville, yeah. and the internal revenue took my portion of that and a couple of other things. And the mortgage companies took the houses the ex-wives were in, and it was just all gone. Uh, I, I lived for about a year up until the fall of 1980, which was six months before it got sober, without an address. I did not sleep under the bridge, but the only reason I didn't was I could always get somebody to take me in. Yeah. And sometimes, in fact, frequently it was strangers. I hmm. could always get somebody to take me in, but I had no address. had no home. I had no car. had no clothes. My teeth were rotting out of my head. I had no place to go. Everybody that I know who knew me during that period, including the people in recovery that had tried to 12-step me, had concluded that I was hopeless, and I had too. The uh, following 80, I wound up at Asylum Number 17. <laughs> it was back in Nashville. It was that one's Cumberland Heights down there, in fact. And um, they let me in. They told me later because they didn't think I'd live a week if they left me on the street because they knew they weren't going to get paid anything. And I stayed in there about a month, and it was time to give a little over a month. It was time to kick me out. Um, so they uh, <coughs> kicked me out and I had no place to go. And I had a roommate who was a really young guy. I was 36, but Matt was was 21. His family lived in Nashville. Let me know if you need some more to drink. I'm sorry? If you need some more or, refill, let me know. Thank you, Dan. I got enough to make it through, I think. I also have a water um, thing over there, too. Perfect. Thank you. But his sweet family, and those folks really weren't involved in in AA that much. Uh, you know, sometimes we get to thinking we've got a monopoly on spirituality in AA. Yeah. Uh, my sweet wife, Sharon, never been in AA, doesn't need to be in AA, not in a 12-step program. Wakes up every, every morning more spiritual than I can get after two hours of prayer, meditation, and intensive work with another alcoholic. Uh-huh. And yet, every once in a while, I have to bite my tongue from saying something like, well, honey, what do you know about spirituality? You're not even an alcoholic. And the truth is this, I'm convinced. In 1934 and 1935, God took pity on the spiritually handicapped and put the same spirituality that people had been enjoying for millennia in a form so simple that even we could grab hold of a little corner of it and be okay. Yeah. But at any rate, those sweet like folks that. said, why don't you come stay with us a few days? we are try to figure out what to do with you. I wouldn't live with them a year. <laughs> <And> <laughs> <laughs> the first six months, I didn't stay straight, but it got better, and I had to get better. Because I'd lost the ability to use a knife and fork on food effectively, not just properly, effectively. I mean, I was a complete wreck of a human being in every way. Um, And I did get better. During that six-month period, I went to a world of meetings there in Nashville. Almost all of them at the 202 Club, we call. It's actually the Friendship House. But because of its address, we call it the 202 Club. And I went to a world of meetings, that's six months. Got to where I could go two or three weeks sometimes without getting ripped. Mm. And that was a world record for me. And they only put me back in an asylum one time on Valentine's Day of 1981 in that entire six-month period. And the rate I'd been going twice a year in the asylum looked like the picture of mental health. uh, (laughs) Late March 81, I got on my most recent drunk, and it was another one of my pop-off vodka slash Listerine drunks. Mm. And I have honestly drunk buckets of both those things. And uh, this is not a joke. I have better memories of the Listerine. (laughs) I I can stand to smell Listerine today, but I can't stand to smell that old cheap hot vodka. But... On this most recent drunk, I was drinking and taking everything I would get my hands on. And by the time April the 8th rolled around, which is the most recent day I drank, I'd been drunk 10 days or two weeks. And uh, sitting on the edge of a bed in a motel in Nashville. And I know now that a loving God that I had never asked for anything, that I didn't even acknowledge existed, gave me the most beautiful, life-saving, and life-enhancing gift that I have ever had, or that I will ever have. And that gift is at the very heart of my being to this very day. And it's a little bit hard to describe, because it wasn't a change of mind. I didn't know anything was different. There were no different thoughts, feelings, or beliefs. What had changed, though, and I didn't know it. For the first time in my life, not knowing why I was doing it, I started voluntarily following suggestions about how to run my life. Mm. Even though I didn't understand them, I didn't agree with them, I didn't think they would work, and I surely did not want to do them. And that's the difference in me being sitting here in your shop doing this podcast today and me having been rotting in a pauper's grave for over 38 years. Yeah. By, the time I, <clears throat> by that time, the phenomenon of craving had progressed in me to the point where the physical need for alcohol was the most powerful, most painful thing I've ever felt. Drunk and sober, I've had 13 or 14 major surgeries, um, the last one in June end of this year, and none of them have hurt me nearly as much as each one of the last couple of hundred times, I came off alcohol. Mm. Most horrible experience I've ever been through in my life. Most addictive, most destructive substance I've ever put in my body. But uh, by that time, it took three or four days after something separated me from alcohol, because I'd physically lost the ability to separate myself, for me to be able to do something like sit up in a chair well, I got through the three or four days, and and when I was able to stumble, I stumbled back to the door of that 202 club, and I didn't think they'd let me in, and in today's world they wouldn't, hmm. because I had passed out in their AA meetings and had to be bodily carried out. They'd caught me in their men's room with the illegal outside issues, yeah. uh, and they'd warned their sponsors, sponsees, to stay away from me, that I was a loser and I was going to die. About two months before I got sober, I was walking through that clubhouse and a big old boy by the name of Joe, Joe's been dead 15 years or so now, He's about 6'5", and as you can tell, I'm about 5'7". And um, Joe walked up to me and looked way down at me and said, you know, Don, I'm beginning to think that you really are too intelligent for this program. And I thought he was giving me a compliment. (laughs) <laughs> my jerk reaction was, Well thank goodness they've finally figured out who they're dealing with here. Yeah. But Joe went on and it may have saved my life. He said, And that's a shame, because we have never had anybody too dumb for this deal. And we bury you buttholes all time. Right. Yeah. And then that felt yeah. like an icy hand closing over something inside me. And that icy hand was still there two months later. When I stumbled back to the door of the clubhouse yeah. and it's still in there today. Yeah. Thank God, you let me get off the beam. You let me take a stitch or two off the beam. Yeah. And so far, I feel the tips of that icy, those icy fingers, and whammo, I get right back on it. But yeah. at any rate, I stumbled back to the door of that clubhouse and they did let me in. I remember exactly what was said and who said it. Harry B. Said, come on in, Don. You are keeping us sober. And I said, will you tell me one more time what I need to do if I want to live? And they said, sure. Don't drink, don't take, don't go to meetings. By the grace of God, the first 60 days I was sober, I went to over 150 meetings. I did not want to go to a single one of those meetings. Unless after I got the feeling better, I was hoping I'd run back into some girl or something. For no legitimate reason did I want to go to one of those meetings. It was still... Absolutely clear to me that the folks in the meetings were religious fanatics. My brain was still assuring me that what we needed to do was get our head out of the sand, get our butt back to Louisville, get some money, a law license, a good-looking woman, a big car, be somebody, for God's sake. But i have been given that beautiful gift I didn't know I had of being able to turn around in my brain and say, yeah, I know, but you and I have nearly killed one another. Yeah. And we don't have anywhere else to go, so we're just going to go. We're just going to go to those dumb old meetings, even though they can't possibly work in our unique circumstances. Yeah. And thank God I had the same thing backwards about that, that without divine intervention, I've had backwards every day of my life. And that's back to what we talked about at the very beginning. I make it all about what I think, feel, and believe. You see, I thought in order for AA to work, first I had to believe it would work. Then I thought it had to feel like it was working while it was working. And I think I believed that I had to be able to see the causal relationship of A causing B. It turned out none of those things had anything to do with it. I needed to just get my raggedy butt to meeting after meeting. And let my old sick brain and soul get dragged in there behind the butt and <coughs> the butt. Yeah. And then they told me if I want to live, I was going to have to read the big book. And I said, I, I've read it a few times. And they said, we know. Uh, you've been quoting it to us while you've been dying. <laughs> they said, if you want to live, you better get first this straight. That book is not a philosophy book. There's nothing in it you can learn, they said that will keep you sober for a heartbeat. What this book really is, is a simple instruction manual for your actions. And they said, if you want to live, you're going to say the set-aside prayer to set aside everything you think you know about the book and the whole deal and yourself and God, or in your case, the lack of one, and you're going to start at the front cover and go through it line for line, looking, <coughs> reading only the black part, they told me. Uh, and not looking for anything to learn, memorize, argue with, or distinguish. But looking for what it says, do. And then they says, if you want to live, do it. And it was about that time that they explained to me that the 12 steps of, of AA are the prescription for alcoholism. They work on alcoholism, they, were, uh, they said, exactly like penicillin works on an infection. If I've got an infection that's going to kill me if it's not treated but will respond to penicillin, I don't need to understand the origin, the width, breadth, and nature of my infection. I don't need to aggravate the people around me in the medical profession whining about that because the truth is I could learn every fact there is to know about that infection. And if I don't take the pills, I'm dead meat. makes no difference. I don't need to understand how penicillin works in the human body. I don't need to believe that that little bottle of pills can take care of all these terrible things wrong with me. And the last thing they said was probably the most pertinent to me. I don't need to want to take the pills. Whether or not I want to take the pills is totally irrelevant. If I've got the infection and I take the pills as directed I'll get just fine. Right. And they guaranteed me that regardless of what was going through the old crazy picture show in my head, if I would do the first, the action that is the first nine steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in order to reach a state of recovery, which my sponsor told me in my case would last about eight seconds, uh, and then the action that is steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis to maintain that recovery, that the steps would work on my alcoholism regardless of what was going on in my head. Guaranteed. And the fact that I'm sitting here is a testament to the fact that those guys were right. Yeah. And Dan, I've been so blessed. I've been able to see the miracle yeah. of that very thing working in the yeah. lives of hundreds yeah. of alcoholics over yeah. the last 38 years. Yeah. So that, that is- was critical. Um, the third thing they told me, was that I wanted to live, I was going to, have to get on my knees every morning and every night and ask a power greater than myself to get, get, <coughs> to get through without drinking or drugging. Or, and and uh, I explained to him my problem with the second step, that the second step was killing me. There wasn't very much of me that wanted to live. There really wasn't in that last two or three years. But there was a little part that wanted to live. And that little part had known for a fact that for a couple years, that the only outside chance I had of living was to somehow get this AA deal. And I believed in order to get it, I had to somehow make myself start thinking, feeling, and believing the way it looked like to me you folks thought, felt, and believed, Hmm. or more like it. And I explained to them tearfully that I tried every way I could, and I couldn't change a hair of my thoughts, feelings, beliefs. So I had to die. And I finally heard them. I'm sure I'd heard this a hundred times, or it had been said in my presence, but I hadn't heard it. They said, oh, Don, you've got that backwards, too. We have never suggested that you think, feel, or believe anything. And my mouth probably fell open because I think that's the whole ball game. They said, well, no, we wouldn't do that. Said in the first place, you're far too ill to have any valid thoughts, feelings, or beliefs whatsoever. And they said in the second place, the issue of whether you live or die is going to be determined solely by what you do. What you think, feel, believe won't have a thing to do with it. And they said, by the way, Going back to the big book and the steps, get it out of your head that recovery is a learning process. They said you got to learn a tiny bit. They said in your case, Don, you've had enough information about AA and recovery for over two years to stay sober a day at a time the rest of your life without learning one single new piece of information. What's killing you, dummy, is not what you know and don't know. What's killing you is what you're doing and not doing. Hmm. So they told me that if I wanted to live, I better get down on my knees and start saying those words. And what was going through my head didn't count. I nodded at them tearfully, and my thought was in a pig's butt. I'm not doing that. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm not doing that crap. In the latter part of April a couple of weeks after that, over my brain's loud veto, embarrassed, even though I was by myself. As far as I was concerned, I started getting down on my knees every morning, every night, and talking to the wall, asking something I did not believe was there to do something I did not believe could be done. And the twin miracles of the second step happened. The first part of it is that I didn't have to wait until my mind had taken the leap of the second step. If I hadn't waited until my mind really believed right. that a some kind of metaphysical power greater than myself yeah. could get me out of the humanly hopeless dilemma that we all accept we are in if we've done step one properly, If I'd had to wait until the penny dropped on that, I'd have been in that pauper's grave. The first miracle is that when I began to behave like a person would behave who did believe that, I got all the benefits of being a believer. And the second part of the miracle, of course, is that by taking the action consistent with belief and faith, I came to believe. If I'd kept trying to think my way into right acting there, i'd have been in that pauper's grave yeah but taking the action at work they led me through the first of the steps in nashville primarily cherry um i lived in nashville 21 months sober after i got sober uh unemployed and unemployable doing odd jobs here and there um happier than i'd ever been in my life didn't think there's any possibility of ever getting a, 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 a law license back didn't want one didn't think i could stay sober with a law license back um <clears throat> i did my fourth and fifth step formed a picture of what a spiritual don ought to look like went back to my attic i'd moved out from my folks i was living with and had my very own attic by that time and I, I took the big book followed directions exactly spent one hour reviewing the first five steps uh Looked like I'd done okay, so you know we have nearly a half page on page 76 with about steps six and seven. There's not another word in the first 164 pages of the book. And I was convinced that six and seven were where, with God's help, I had gotten that far on the God's help thing. I went to work on me to make me into what I had decided a spiritual dawn ought to be. So I got down on my knees, said that seventh step prayer, And proceeded to do that for the next eight years until I was nine years sober. In the process of steps eight and nine, to my surprise, as a byproduct, my law license got put back in order. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you the forgiveness of non-alcoholics for us. When we finally start doing the right thing passes all understanding. It's not even fair, Dan. Yeah, so you're right. We we are treated better than the poor schmuck that just kept on showing up and doing doing what they're supposed to We are truly the prodigal children. But at any rate, at 21 months sober, I had a choice. I could stay in Nashville and starve to death, or I could go back to Louisville and try to practice law again because I couldn't find a minimum wage job. If I could have found one, I would never have left Nashville. My fear of coming back to Louisville was so great, and to this day, I don't believe there was any paranoia in that.
2: Mm.
1: I think it was reasonable fear. The crap I'd done in human terms, I don't think I had any business showing my face back in Louisville. I think a loving God poured oil on the troubled waters of my past, keep the worst of what I had, had feared from happening. Um, <clears throat> Came back, um, nothing, uh, came back up I-65 in a barred 10-year-old car with everything I owned in the passenger seat of the front seat. Wow. My former law partners had rented me a furnished room, and had made, had had paid for me a month of an office, a safe two blocks from them, so it couldn't <laughs> get any more crap on them when I messed up again. A yeah. uh, second month I was in town. By God, incidents! Uh, I had never been to a conference; had only a, a, a vague idea that they existed. But the Kentucky State Conference was in town, and conferences were bigger then. There were fewer of them, and they were bigger. There were two thousand people here that year. Wow! It was at what's now the, I think, Clarion that was then a Ramada um, on Hurstman Lane at yep. the mm-hmm. at the sixty four. Yep. And the Sunday morning speaker was supposed to be a guy who became a, a good friend of mine. Uh, Don P. from from Colorado. Don's been dead several years now. And uh, the Saturday morning speaker kept going on and on and on. And I don't know the protocol of conferences, and I got to pee really bad. (laughs) See, the doctors were wrong about their prognosis. I've been sober. 38 years and I haven't owned a brace for my leg for over 39. Mm -hmm. And about a year after the wreck, the head of urology down at Duke University did put my plumbing back together. And I don't know whether they're going to blackball me from if I get up, walk out, talk, or what. Right. But finally, about an hour and 20 minutes, I got to go. So I headed out from the big hall toward the men's room. And three or four members of the host committee one of whom was Bernie, who wound up being my Louisville sponsor for 16 years before his death. were out there huddling on what to do about the fact that they didn't have a Sunday morning speaker. And Bernie looked over at me and said, I heard him talk over at Hubbard's Lane Friday night. Let's stick him up there. So at 22 months sober, they stuck me in front of 22 or 2,000 people. Wow. And I thought it was the most horrible thing to ever happen. And as my judgment usually is on events in my life, it was 180 degrees off, right? It began the rest of my life. And then the yeah. last 36 and a half years since then that was February of '83 I've spent considerably more time traveling and working one-on-one with alcoholics than I have practicing law. And God has taken care of me just beautifully. And yeah. people began to ask me to speak here and speak there. And uh, people began to be, ask me to be their sponsor and do this and mm-hmm. do that. And that same month, February of 83, I saw Dana, my only child, for the first time in over three years. Wow. Two months later, she moved in with me uh. and lived with me throughout her high school years. And we Miracle just thing. had a ball. And uh, she lives in Chicago now but has a vacation place up in Carroll County and uh Dana and I in touch every day. She's been in Al nine over thirty years and How cool and she is that? went with me in two thousand ten. I'd been asked to go over and do the steps and uh Kiev, Ukraine, and Moscow, Russia. Wow! And Dana had done a two-year apprenticeship on our art in Russia, mm. and has a thing for languages. Is fluent in Russian. Oh, wow! So she went with me and did the Al-Anon part without an interpreter. That is very uh, cool. So uh, Man. she and I, uh, she and I, just well, we have. And th- this past May, she was the Al-Anon speaker at a at an AA conference down in Mississippi, where I was one of the AA. Con- speakers and we just love it when we get to do stuff I'll like bet. that yeah but, that's special uh, no doubt at any rate um and we need to wind up i know here dan but i do want to talk a little bit about what's got, what god's done for me yeah um i mentioned that, that i flew past steps eight and nine or six and seven rather and believed that to be where i went to work on me with god's help And I want to tell you, I I worked in good faith, and I used good faith tools. I was using prayer steps. And by the way, on the prayer, after I started acting as if getting on my knees in April of 81, I could count the mornings and nights I missed getting on my knees, on my fingers. Um, And there's nothing more important than my sobriety, in my sobriety than getting on my knees morning and night. Mm. Now, a good half the time in all those thousands of mornings and nights, I hadn't wanted to. A whole mm. bunch of time, I haven't felt like it. In fact, could have gotten a medical written excuse I didn't feel like. It. Right. Yeah. More times, I could have gotten my affidavits from clients, lawyers, and judges. I didn't have time to get down there. Um, many times, I've been so scared and obsessed with something that It's clear to me the words are bouncing off the walls and ceiling. Couldn't possibly be doing any good. Sometimes I have trouble remembering the last word. I just tried to pray. I'm so obsessed with something about me. Now, that doesn't happen nearly as much as it used to, thank God. But at any rate, I thought that that was invalidating my prayers after I had come to believe there in Nashville. So I went back to Cherry, my sponsor, with that problem. And Cherry said, Don, your ego's going to kill you yet. He said, let's examine this. Said, are you under the impression that God is not aware of your needs unless you clearly delineate them? <laughs> said, or maybe your uh, idea of your higher power is that he or she is so lacking in power that they are somewhere wringing their hands saying, Oh, I so hope Don stumbles across the magic words. I want to do this, but I can't do it unless Don says it just right. And he went he own said, "In your case, I know it's subconscious, but I think it's worse than that." Said, "I think you subconsciously think you'll state it so eloquently that you will sway God into doing something God wasn't going to do otherwise." He said, "Dummy, if we approach prayer, the steps, any part of our recovery, in any way as an intellectual or psychological endeavor, it will not work." It will not work any better than all the intellectual and psychological treatment plans for alcoholism at work. And that's mighty close to zero. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> at any rate, I was trying really hard on these character defects. And, of course, it was the ones that were making me uncomfortable that I wanted to get rid of yep. uh, <clears throat> and that were inconsistent with this idea of who I thought I ought to be. And I'd grab them figuratively by the collar, slam them up against the wall and say, come here, God, give me a little help. We'll get rid of him." God never came. Hmm. It was primarily relationships with the women folks and, and financial chaos that was killing me. Finances and romances. Same old story. Nothing unique about me. Uh, <clears throat> May of 1990, some things happened that I'm going to go uh, into, but... Cherry had died in the winter of 89, 90, and I'd gotten Tom B. from Avon Lake. He and I had spoken at some conferences together, and I I liked Tom. I asked him to be my my authority sponsor. Bernie was my friend and my sponsor. And I'd gone up to see Tom, and and some things happened that weekend that I was there that caused me to begin to look at 6 and 7 an entirely different way. And it turns out I'd missed the boat entirely. In the first place, this idea that I can have an idea of what a spiritual dawn ought to be, that's hubris. That's absolute, unexcusable ego, that I would have an idea of what God's plan for my life would be. So you see, my problem with perfection turned out not to be what I thought it was. I thought it was the inability to attain it, and certainly I am unable to attain it, but I never get there. My problem with perfection is I can't recognize it. I can't comprehend what perfection is. And I can never comprehend or understand the patterns of my life. That belongs to God. My job is stitching one stitch at a time. I love that. I told some friends a couple of days ago that God lights the path, but God doesn't use a searchlight. God uses a penlight. He only lights it one step at a time. Yeah, And Great. if I listen to that divine spark that I believe that's in every one of us mm-hmm. and just take that next stitch and leave the patterns up to God, things work out. If I'm not doing that, Dan, I'm like an ant floating down the river on a log who thinks he's steering the log, Yeah, running back and forth, driving himself crazy trying to do things totally beyond his control. You see, the truth is, the only glimpse of God's will I ever get is in the absolute right now for my next action. Right, And the only power I really ever have in this universe is over that next action. And when I can keep it that simple, things begin to happen. And it turned out six and seven weren't where... I went to work on myself with or without God's help. It was where I accepted that I can't effectively work on any of my character defects any better than I could work on my alcoholism. Yeah. It's where I come back to my God, lay everything at my God's feet, and say, Mom, Dad, here it is. It's where I understand that for those nine years that I've been praying for God to remove the character defects, I won't go on. I might as well have been praying for a bright red Ferrari because that's praying for my own selfish ends. The real purpose of this deal is not for me to be sober spiritually and happy. That's a wonderful byproduct of it. But it's in the seventh step prayer. It's in the third step prayer. It's on page 77 in the eighth and ninth step prayer. You see, what's wrong with me at its core is self-centeredness. I can't effectively treat it by any form of obsession on self. It's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. Yeah. And <clears throat> what I've got to do, you know, third step prayer, take away my difficulties. Not so I can be sober and spiritual and happy, but okay. the victory over them will bear witness to those I would help. Seventh step prayer, don't take away all my character defects. God, I don't know which ones need to stay a while. And don't take away the ones that are making me uncomfortable. Yeah. I may need to keep those to help somebody later down the line remove only the ones that stand in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Yeah. Eighth and ninth step. Yeah, we're trying to put our lives in order, but that's not our real purpose. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and those about us. Yeah. And that's what it is. And I wind up by saying this. If in May of 1990, I had... Uh, made a list of what I thought and I was nine years old and had a good life, you know, sponsoring a room full of people and speaking all over the country, law practice going well. Uh, made a list of the best I could have in every area of my life, the spiritual, the material, everything. And God said, okay, Don, I grant it. I would have shortchanged myself in every single area of my life when I'm willing to really come as a little child and just try to take that next stitch and not, not be concerned with whether people love, comfort, and understand me, but be concerned with whether I can love, comfort, and understand them. And rather than trying to figure out the big picture, give my entire interest, attention, and love to whomever or whatever is right in front of me. Yeah god takes care of me more beautifully than i ever ever could my sweet sharon and i started dating that same month may of 90. Mm. come december we'll have been married 29 years have never argued and i good god willing we never will pray on our knees together every night we have ever spent under the same roof wow. um i sponsored some guys that are counselors and psychologists and uh, they tell me it's not healthy to never argue, and uh, I tell them they're welcome to their healthy relationships. I'm doing okay over here. thanks. Yeah. Uh, and if you caught me arguing with anybody in the last 30 years, somebody was paying me. <laughs> I will not argue with you because God's relieved that horrible need to be right. What does it make who's right, for God's sake? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the um, the bar association that I had so... So embarrassed, has honored me until it's just unbelievable, and that's nothing I've done. I've said to you today what I did with my life. I destroyed it, and there's no human way to get from where I was in 1981 to here. But that bar association has put me on citizens for better judges to determine if people are qualified to be judged. They've they've made me chair of that. They've they've made me a master at intercourt court with the most important lawyers and judges in and the dean of the law school in, in in kentucky uh they've told me come to the bar dinner you're getting the pro bono lawyer of your award they've said come to the bar dinner you're getting the award for professionality and civility and god's got such a sense of humor about 15 years ago i'm sitting in the barber chair and my cell phone rung. was the president of the state bar and he said don we've got an opening on the Ethics Committee. <laughs> so for over 10 years, I served on the State Bar Ethics Committee and the Ethics Hotline, so that if a lawyer in Kentucky had an ethical problem and called me and did what I said do, even if it turned out I was dead wrong, that lawyer was 100% insulated from any disciplinary action. That's a lot of trust to put yeah. in a guy that's been in the asylum 18 times. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. You know, I listen to so many things, and I talk to some of my
0: guys here when I'm doing this podcast, and I hear what I call, my son has these things at school, and they call them bell ringers, and I really don't know what that means in his school. I don't know what that means, but to me, when you say things that I relate to, my bell gets rang, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, as I sit and listen to you, you know, and I I wonder about how much I've listened to, because uh, so many things you've said have uh, rang my bell today. And some of them have just been right online, and I almost am certain that some of them I have been passing on to people that I get the opportunity and honor to work with, too. Uh, yeah. and, and I go, you know, I'm, there's a really good chance, because <laughs> of the anth on the log, I say. <laughs> i I'll probably picked that up. You know, who knows where all this stuff comes from? We pass it on. Like you said, nothing's original, but but they're great. Uh, it's great stuff that, you uh, know, and, and I follow I don't know what it is in, in what you said, that, that 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 miracle of being able to take people's suggestions and just do that uh, was where, you know, because in my story, I talk about getting backed into a corner. I stood in front of a judge who told me I was going to prison for six to 20 years down here in New Albany. I've been breaking in houses, taking steel and pain pills, and I got caught. Mm-hmm. And, and And at that moment, I felt like I was in a big black box and there was a tiny little bitty pinhole of light in a corner. And what that tiny little light was, was somebody offered me the 12 steps. That's what it was. And I could not see any other way to go. Right. But I knew that hole was too small for me to fit through. <laughs> and, sure. and, but that's where I had to put my faith. I just didn't have any, I was, I was backed into a corner. It was like, you know, <clears throat> it was, well, looks like my only option. <laughs> I will try to fit through that hole. And, and lo and behold, like you said, uh, the thing about if I'd have written a script for myself, and now uh, you know um uh, the time time does bring you something some wisdom and some time and some of this stuff i think lands on you and it becomes more ingrained and more natural i think uh with with time uh, approaching five years if i'd have written a script for myself i would just in that short amount of time i would have completely sold myself short completely you know uh I have had things happen like, you know, I've lost a twenty-eight year job just this year. It was a miracle, it was great. It's actually handed me and I thought I keep on having these things that look like they're bad. That's right. You know, I keep on going, that's not good. And it turns out to be go, oh, this is great. And like you said, if I stay in the moment and just walk this path and let and, and let my higher power, let God direct me. And then I listen, you know, I get your things every day, not from you. I get your writings every day, the the morning meditations from a common friend that shares us with, shares it with a group. And one of my favorite things is that one stitch at a time that I'm not responsible for the entire tapestry. I'm just responsible for taking this next step. And, and I'm uh, not
1: responsible for it. I can't see it. or understand. Yeah, it. right. Yep.
0: And you know, I'm sitting here in front of this and being able to do these podcasts, and and you know, people are listening to this. You know, I'm getting emails from people in on the other on the other coast that are listening to this podcast. How's that happen? I'm just some new Omni hick, you know, that <laughs> but happens to live in the same house he grew he moved to when he's three years old. You know, and and I get mm-hmm. to sit here and do this thing. I get to I get to like you said, uh, pass this thing to other people because see, like. I like the what, you know, I, I kind of understood how it could happen for me because I'm a little special. Yeah. I <laughs> but then when you start watching other people and you hand it to them and you watch their life, the, that really is just something that today, every pretty much everything I do in my life today is in an effort to do that,
2: to help that, that other guy.
1: The only thing that we'll ever take out of this world, in my opinion, is what we can, can put in it. So yeah. What I'm getting out of it's the wrong question. The right question is, what can I bring to it? Yeah, yeah. And then I wind up getting more out of it than I could ever drink.
0: Yeah, and early on, you said something too, the kind of bell ringer thing was something about the fellowship, you know, and, and finding that when you first started drinking, finding that fellowship you were looking for. And that's mm-hmm. another thing that's I picked true. up from Scott L. Was that, you know, that backing up, what a lot of people read is that closing, that our book is suggestive only, that sentence, that mm-hmm. little paragraph. When I get a chance to read that, I'll back up into that paragraph because that fellowship that I crave, mm-hmm. that I was craving, and that's really why I was putting that stuff in me to some extent because it helped me be one of you guys you know one of those guys but i that fellowship i thought i needed and today i have that today with a group of guys around me that uh i mean i could not trade i wouldn't trade anything in the world for the fellowship and the gentlemen the men that i have standing that stand with me hand in hand as we uh as we do this thing i tear up to think about how much those guys
1: mean to me let me quickly share one poem one, one Advantage of the fellowship that I just love. My insane ideas never sound like common sense to you. Yeah. And your insane ideas never sound like common sense to me. Yeah. So as long as we get it out of our head and we talk to the folks around us we're gonna be okay yeah yeah we've got this little tool
0: uh, we've got this little chat thing on our phones and we are staying in contact all the time and it's some people might think it's not so healthy but for us it works really good because we get to dump that crazy thoughts out there mm-hmm. and, and, and to a bunch of us you know it's like having a meeting 24/7 you know it's not just having to talk to one uh-huh. it's like say okay all 30 of you guys here's what I'm
1: thinking they can all go. <laughs>
0: You're crazy, man. I, I don't or see, the flip side of it, once in a while, yeah. one of my ideas is okay, yeah. and they go, "Yeah, man, I think you ought to do that."
1: I, I think it would be foolish not to take every advantage we can of technology in uh, in, in enhancing our fellowship yeah. and, and carrying the message. Yeah, yeah, I like it, especially you
0: when know, we invite new guys into these things with that, you know, and they've got that same tool, so they've got this this running from you know where we've mm-hmm. got guys from a couple years of sobriety to up into the thirties available. Twenty-four-seven, and you know maybe not everybody's available all the time, but there's a handful available all the time. And I tell people, you know, there's something that I could sit right now and turn this phone over and say, "Help me!" And here's mm-hmm. where I'm at. And as fast as a, as fast as four, five, six of them, probably I'm gonna guess, could get here, they would be here. They'd yeah, be right
1: with you. I, 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 I am a big fan of your home group, buddy. Uh, I have sent two or three people there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, just watching them together. It, you guys help them do. Something that is the stumbling block for so many people. So many people try to fit AA into their lives, and that never works. They have to fit their lives into AA if it's going to work. Yeah, it's a really and good And you point. guys are doing a great job of helping people do that.
0: Yeah, man. and And golly, and you know, we're having so much fun, you know? And like people come to our end of our meeting and before and after, and it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like you're in a conference. Because, I mean, it's just chat, 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 chat. I sit back and listen to that, and I've heard this is another thing I've heard from Scott. Uh, he says his laughter is the sound of recovery. I've mm-hmm. heard him say that. I, uh, I listen to that chatter in that room. And to me, I sit there and I look at that and I go, that is the sound of recovery you know those guys are connecting everybody you know sometimes you go it sounds like you're at the library you know you go, <laughs> you go to some places like Shh.
1: and you know it, it, it it's a reassuring thought that that sound you're talking about was no doubt the same sound that was there uh, in 1936 yeah
0: yeah yeah thank god for all this for sure um because i I would simply be lost. I would be, like you said, a pauper's grave. There's no way. I. Well, more likely where I would be would still be in in the bars. Judge Cody down there said where he was going to put me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Why? You know, there's only one explanation. I didn't spend a day in jail. Not one. Uh, And something come in and and I started doing this work and things Mm -hmm. started changing. You know, and I, mm-hmm. and I never, and then and how many times I sit with my sponsors and everything you said, the times I sit my sponsor and he's giving me the suggestions and in my head, I'm going, that is never going to work. <laughs> you're gonna, you got to give me something better than that. You know, <laughs> pray. That's what I'm put, Those are my directions for this, this seemingly insurmountable obstacle is you're telling me to go home and pray. And then I would go do what he told me to do and whatever that was. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it again worked out beyond my understanding i can share that with him today but you know back then i couldn't do anything but inside my head just going
1: you know bs bs that, that this guy nope not gonna work and it's, it's prayer and it's action yeah do you know how you turn a toothache over to god you go to a dentist if you don't believe it next time you get a toothache pray do an inventory on it and call your sponsor and let me know how that works Good point, yeah. I want to turn things over to God with this great spiritual and intellectual yeah. thing and that's lifted off my shoulders I turn things over to God with my feet not with my mind at any rate and by the way you, you mentioned passing things on maybe that I had said you're not only welcome to do that, you're welcome to pass on anything you think I said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, uh, I listen to a lot, you know, and you uh, was talking about some gifts, you know, and I don't know where they came from. Uh, I would have told you some time ago that I can not remember people's names. I'm no good with names. Well, that's not the truth. Mm-hmm. I am fantastic with names. As a matter of fact, I am so good with names, it's almost scary. I see people, and a year or two later, we had I had a guy come up to me two years, I didn't know how long it had been since i seen him. he come hung around with us for a month or two and mm-hmm. then disappeared. And I saw him just a couple of months ago, and he walked up, and I could remember his face, and I could remember his name, and I could smile at him and say hello and use his first name. And uh, the lights it flashed on, a guy's you know, ball cap down, didn't want to look anybody in the eye, and somebody remembered his name. Uh, And that's that's not me. That Mm -hmm. is not me. That's Mm -hmm. a gift that has been handed to me. And the same thing comes with being able to remember all these little sayings. You know, all these little things that I've picked up from listening to all these speaker tapes and listening to all these speaker meetings and and read and, and done all that stick somehow or another. And I've told you that, that couldn't that I wasn't possible that, that wasn't capable of doing that at some point in my life. Kinda of like what you said about thinking that you were poor. Uh exactly. I'd have thought that I wasn't smart enough to remember all this stuff. <laughs> and uh it turns out that's uh that's not the case, you know.
1: Yep, we um we had taken to to different places and the the very traits that nearly killed me. God takes them and molds them into vehicles to enhance my life and help other people. My tendency to be really obsessive and compulsive about things. I'm convinced that AA works largely based on, we get that same character trait turned around and focus it on recovery. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I, I truly believe that that's one reason it works so well for us. Yeah. Yeah, I can kind of look at it a little bit like a phenomenon of
0: craving. Right. With this growth that I'm experiencing and the cool things that are happening in my life, I want more of that. That's right. And so I'll keep continuing to do the things that's exactly. that's helping me get there. Okay. Uh I have a friend, you know, you were talking about, you know, these people that came into your life and that's that's just Bob Earl calls some of them Eskimos. Have you ever listened to Bob Earl He's uh you know he's Bob. past. Yes, I liked his Eskimo story. You know about how these people come into your life and you don't realize what they're doing. And these other people that were standing in these rooms, like you said, the one big gentleman that was six five or whatever, six seven, and looked down on you and, and gave you the line about you know burying a lot of dummies. Uh, you might be too smart for this program. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, had people like that that are really you know today um, really close hold really. Warm spots in my heart today because of them telling me the truth back when I was just stumbling along, like what you were talking to me. Like at some point, I thought I'd, like when you've you're, you're been scouts, were you a scout? I was Cub Scout, but it was too much discipline (laughs) for me. You get this little card that's for, so you can carry a knife or a hatchet or whatever. It's called a tone chip, you know, and they would cut, if you mess up and you're not safe with your card, they cut the corners off of them. You lost all four corners, you lost your knife for a while. Well, I thought the same thing about AA, and I'd had all the corners cut off my AA card, you know, and I couldn't come back, you know. I thought when I, when I really hit another bottom, I couldn't do it. I couldn't find my way back into a room. I would park in front of these places and not be able, my ego would not allow me to get out of the car. And I was telling you and everybody else I was going to a meeting, and I was going to a meeting. I just didn't attend a meeting. You didn't go in. <laughs> uh, and, and I would come home and do that. But I, and I was just tore up inside. you know. And a friend of mine started, he posted on uh, Facebook that he was having a meditation meeting. And, uh, and I thought, well, maybe I can go to that. And I'll be dog if I didn't walk in that, into that meditation meeting. And I went there once and turned around and left, too. I've stood out, i parked outside, and I could not go in. But I come back the next Saturday, and I made it in there. Lo and behold, is all people from AA was in that meeting. You know, and that actually gated me, tricked me. you tricked me. (laughs) And that was my gate back into coming back. That was what opened the door for me to start being able to come back into rooms again. When I had been standing down there, that was right after getting uh, caught breaking into his houses and, and not knowing, you know, like I said, not knowing where to go. I just couldn't get back into AA could not find my way there without
1: some divine intervention tricking me into going to a meditation meeting that was really... <laughs> I am really grateful that it happened to you because something that I tell people who are slipping and sliding because it's true is every time we go out and people get in a pattern of that and, and somewhere in them there's the idea, oh, I can go back to AA. Mm-hmm. And we never know when we're gonna walk out, and we go back, and the door is never locked from the A.A. side, but just what you were experiencing, yep. where the door is locked yeah. from our side, yeah. And we never know which one that's gonna be. Yeah,
0: it is. It's uh, yeah, and there's some something in our psyche, or something that makes it harder to come back every time. I think, Absolutely. you know, and that's what you hear about. Especially, you know, and another, another dynamic there is when people have had a lot of time and then they they go back out and how hard that is oh. to come back after having like established yourself and your ego just doesn't you know and those people die
1: that's most of them do yeah yeah a, i heard years ago that you had more than 20 years and went out that the chances of getting any long-term recovery again were one in 200 yeah yeah uh I believe that i i share that I, I really never knew death
0: like I knew like I know death since coming here and seeing how many people die as a result of this of this disease within the first two weeks of a guy who come in and and, and uh that when I came in with my third tradition when I wanted to stop uh-huh. when I, when I came and showed up then I met a gentleman and and he you know like you said some of these people had an in, uh, instant impact on me I saw something you know instantly that drew me and I was like you know that there was just a magnetic attraction thing, and this guy named Joe did that. And uh, in the second week, I was standing right in a circle with him, and he goes, "Where's Dan at?" <laughs> Wouldn't he? Didn't he say he was going? He should be here, you know. And somebody else pointed at me, and he goes, "You look different already in a week." <laughs> and uh, that guy, two weeks later, decided to pick up a bottle, and he put a gun to his head, and that was that.
1: When I got back to Louisville. Um, very quickly, I uh, started practicing law a couple of months after I got back with Billy H. And uh, I was covering a civil deposition for Billy. I'd been back in town two or three months. And uh, an old court reporter that I had known ever since I started practicing law was there taking down the deposition. And at the end of the deposition, uh, I handed him a card and told him I wanted a copy of the deposition, which is simply what we do. That guy looked down at the card and he said, there used to be a lawyer by this name around here. And I said, oh, I expect I'm the same guy. And he looked at me like 10 seconds and said, no, no, you're not the same guy. That's a cool story,
0: go. yeah. That is neat, yeah. Uh, I would imagine, because like we don't have a time limit, I would imagine we could probably sit here and swap stories, and you probably have so many. Do you think
1: Billy would come and, and, and do this? Well, and I would love to, too. I'll have to say the chairs, getting to my back. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you
0: think Billy would come and do this? I'm sorry? Do you believe that Billy H. would come and do yeah, something like Billy'd this? Yeah, Billy would come. You know, I'm a little intimidated to ask people. Yeah. If it probably wasn't for my relationship with our common friends, well, I'd
1: had trouble yeah.
0: asking you, but they pumped me up and yeah. said uh go oh, come on and
1: well I'm, and, I and I really like to, to preserve these
0: stories and and get them uh you know'cause it's a little bit more long form right you know everything else that happens in uh is 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 mm-hmm. kind of short and and i like mm-hmm. I like to get this, and this is more like uh you know it's at some level them speaker tapes mm-hmm. all them old speaker tapes. Cause I even come after they were actually tapes, but we still called it <laughs> that because he still got it on there. But I heard people. Believe me, the
1: first twenty years I spoke, <clears throat> they were all there. on tapes. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's probably the original
0: podcast, really, mm-hmm. to some extent. Those speaker tapes blowing oh, around. Oh yeah, they're people were who like put the,
1: those on. Uh, and if, if they're going to survive, that's what's got to be done. Because, yeah. You know, nobody's even got the equipment to listen to those things. Yeah. Anymore. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You get a tape, you can't mm-hmm. even you can't even play it. Right. Well, I really. Uh, I appreciate you i love you i really mm-hmm. do uh you've had an impact on my recovery and in, in, in a way that i i really can't you know the, i can't what i do what they always tell me to do, pass it on down to next guy that's the only thing i know to do to help uh to yeah. give back to guys that i've uh that i've
1: learned as much from as i have from you well i appreciate dan appreciate it dan i love you and i have really enjoyed being here and god bless thank you don thank you Hey guys, this is Dan again with the Spiritual Underground
0: Podcast. Uh, Don and I kind of ended a little abruptly there, so I just want to do a normal sign off, add this in. Um, Go to spiritualunderground.org for show notes, dtmww.net for my Handyman Woodworking website, go to Amazon for 12 Steps Spiritual Recovery by James Christopher Cohn, And the music you're hearing in the background and around every podcast is by Darren Frank. Thank you all for allowing me to participate in my recovery in this manner today. Peace out.
2: wanted Always tried to do everything they said Only give the things they would approve of Lock away all your dreams inside your head Year after year you try to be a good girl They never failed upon out. Bed. Stuck to the program like a robot. Became a trophy for mom and dad. But inside you want more.